Hey church, I'm here in Miss Laura Reagan's kitchen. The first homemade meal I ate in Memphis, Tennessee, I ate in this kitchen. It was still one of the best meals I've had. And we're here today because we're talking about food, kind of. We're, we're starting a, a series out of the book of Daniel. And the reason we're going to look at the book of Daniel is because this old book has so much to say about what's going on in our modern world. And most importantly, the book of Daniel points to Jesus Christ. And that's what we're all about here at Highland. And today we're going to start in Daniel chapter 1. And it is a story that has some to do with food, but as you're going to see, it has a lot more to do with our identity as the people of God. So let's pick up in Daniel 1. I'll give a little bit of background as we go. But we're going to start in Daniel 1, starting in verse 1. In the third year of the rule of uh, Judah's king Jehoiakim, Babylon's king Nebuchadnezzar came to Jerusalem and attacked it. And the Lord handed Judah's king Jehoiakim over to Nebuchadnezzar, along with some of the equipment from God's house. And Nebuchadnezzar took those to Shinar, to his own God's temple, putting them in his God's treasury. Now Nebuchadnezzar instructed his highest official, uh, Ashpenaz, to choose royal descendants and members of the ruling class from the Israelites. Good-looking young men without defects, skilled in all wisdom, possessing knowledge, conversant with learning, and capable of serving in the king's palace. And Ashpenaz was to teach them the Chaldean language and its literature. And the king assigned these young men daily allotments from his own food and from his royal wine. So daily allotments from his own food and from his royal wine. And Ashpenaz was to teach them for three years so that at the end of that time they could serve before the king. And among these young men from the Judeans were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. But the chief official gave them new names. He named Daniel Belthazar, Hananiah, Shadrach, Mishael, Meshach, and Azariah, Abednego. Have you ever heard that phrase, resistance is futile? I've been spending way too much time on Google trying to figure out just where that phrase came from. And there's a couple of contenders, but that line, resistance is futile, definitely shows up in Star Trek. Now, I'm not a Trekkie, which is what I think you call people who like Star Trek. I'm not a Trekkie, but I've dabbled a little bit. And in my search for the origins of resistance is futile, I came across that line in the old Star Trek movie, First Contact. And so in the movie, the villain are the cyborgs, okay? I know some of you are barely hanging on right now. Stick with me. When the cyborgs arrive on the scene to take over some planet, they do so through a process called assimilation, where everybody becomes basically cyborgs themselves. Everybody gets drawn into this big network of the enemy cyborgs, and they all become Borgs. And so when they arrive, the Borgs, this is what they say. We are the Borg. Lower your shields. Surrender your ships. We will add your biological and technological distinctiveness to our own. Your culture will adapt to service us. Resistance is futile. Okay, if that illustration was painful for you, just remember sometimes I do sports illustrations. So something for everybody. Resistance is futile. There's a real sense in which that line hangs over the scene here at the beginning of the book of Daniel. Now, the villain in this story well, it's not the cyborgs, it's the Babylonians, and specifically it's King Nebuchadnezzar 
king over the Babylonian Empire. I told you I was going to give you some background to this story. Well, about 600 years before Jesus, King Nebuchadnezzar in the Babylonian Empire conquers the Israelites and sends them into exile in Babylon. So among those are Daniel and his friends that we know as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And you remember their story, and we'll come to it in a few weeks. So what Nebuchadnezzar does when he sends everyone into exile seems, well, almost kind of nice, but it's actually really sinister. So what he does is, instead of treating everybody badly, he begins to treat some of the Israelites really well. And among those is Daniel and his three friends, who we know as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so while not everyone's getting treated well, these guys are. So they're brought into the king's palace. They're given the king's food, the king's wine. They're going to be taught the king's language, Babylonian language and literature. They're going to be educated. They're going to rise up in the empire. And they're even given new Babylonian names. See, it sounds like this Nebuchadnezzar guy, he's not so bad. He's a really nice guy. He's taking care of these Israelites. But what he is after is actually the same thing the Borgs are after. He's after assimilation. He's trying to get these guys to lose their old identities and be drawn into new identities as his people. Now, do you remember that scene in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when Edmund stumbles through the wardrobe for the first time? looking for his sister, but instead finds the white witch, the villain in that famous C.S. Lewis story. I know what you're thinking, Eric, it's been a couple weeks since you've quoted C.S. Lewis and we were getting worried about you. Well, we're back. And you remember in that story, he comes across the white witch and the white witch, realizing he's a human boy, knows she needs to destroy him, but she also wants to destroy his two sisters and brother and she needs him to bring them to her. And so what she asked him is this, what would you like best to eat? And he tells her Turkish delight, which is this small sugary candy. And she makes a magical amount of Turkish delight there appear on the spot. He eats it all. And then she tells him this. She begins to talk about her house. And she says, it's a lovely place, my house, said the queen. I'm sure you would like it. There are whole rooms, there are whole rooms full of Turkish delight. And what's more, I have no children of my own. I want a nice boy whom I could bring up as prince and who would be king of Narnia when I'm gone. While he was prince, he would wear a gold crown and eat Turkish delight all day long. And you are much the cleverest and most handsomest young man I've ever met. I think I would like to make you the prince someday when you bring the others to visit me. So there's more than one way to get people to become what you want them to become or to do what you want them to do. And with the cyborgs, it's the threat of violence and death that gets people to become Borgs. But with the the witch, it's much more sinister, right? It's, It's comfortable even. It's advantageous, it feels like, to go along with her and just eat your fill of Turkish delight and suddenly lose yourself and her plans for you, right? Which brings us back to Daniel. As much as this new culture is trying to absorb and assimilate Daniel, as much as Nebuchadnezzar is trying to have his way with Daniel and his friends to make them Babylonian, to make them fulfill his purposes, 
Daniel is aware of what's going on. So watch what happens next. This is in verse 8. Daniel decided he wouldn't pollute himself with the king's rations or the royal wine, and he appealed to the chief official in hopes that he wouldn't have to do so. Now, God had established faithful loyalty between Daniel and the chief official. But the chief official said to Daniel, I'm afraid of my master, the king, who has is, who is mandated what you are to eat and to drink. Well, what will happen if he sees your faces looking thinner than the other young men in your group? And then he'll have my head because of you. And so Daniel spoke to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah. Why not test your servants for 10 days? You could give us a diet of vegetables to eat and water to drink and then compare our appearance to the appearance of the young men who eat the king's food and then deal with your servants according to what you see. And the guard decided to go along with their plan and he tested them for 10 days. So what's this I'm reading here? Well, Daniel decides something that at first seems pretty small, but it's going to turn out to be pretty big. He decides he's not going to eat some food and some drink from the king's house. Why? Well, it's not because he's, you know, a vegetarian. It's because eating those foods conflicts with who he is as God's person. Now, specifically, these were probably foods that violated kosher laws that were required for God's people, the Israelites, at that time. And we don't have to dig into all those details to understand that the reason he's not wanting to eat these foods is not because he doesn't like them, okay? It's because something, there's something about eating those foods that compromises a core part of who he is, his identity before God. And so he says, I'm not going to do it, which is really notable because what's happening in this first chapter of Daniel is that Nebuchadnezzar is trying to take, turn, and twist Daniel's identity into something of his own. And we see that when he renames Daniel and his friends. So Daniel and his friends have these great Jewish names, like Daniel, which means God is my judge. Hananiah, God has been gracious. Mishael, who is what God is. And Azariah, God has helped. And Nebuchadnezzar tries what what we might call just like a sleight of hand. It's like, oh, those are great names, guys, but I'm just going to call you these names. And and, and don't worry about it. You know, Belthazar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, those are those are really good Babylonian names. People love those names around here. They're going to make you fit in. I'm just going to call you these names instead, except that these names all give credit to Babylonian gods, right? Nebuchadnezzar knows exactly what he's doing, but it's all so subtle, right? And it's all so fast, and it's all so, frankly, comfortable. Here Daniel is in the king's house. He can eat the king's food. He can drink the king's wine. He can go by the king's names. And all of it seems like, well, it'll benefit him. It is all so comfortable. But what we're watching is the ancient version of identity theft. You know, Nebuchadnezzar is subtly taking Daniel's identity, right? Do you remember that parable? that Jesus tells about a farmer who's scattering seed on different types of soil. And that seed represents the Word of God taking root in our hearts. And he says that some seed falls on rocky ground. It's not able to take root in the soil. Some seed falls on the path, and birds come along, and they eat that seed. But then he says that some seed falls in among thorns. 
and it begins to grow, but the thorns come and choke it. This is in Luke 8. As for the seed that fell among thorny plants, these are the ones who, as they go about their lives, are choked by the concerns, riches, and pleasures of life, and the fruit that never matures. Can you picture that? Okay, we tend to think of that parable, and we think that You know, the seed that grows among thorny plants that kind of suck the life out of us, that keep us from becoming who God wants us to be, to use the language of Paul, that keeps Christ from being formed in us. Well, we think those thorns would be like the struggles of life. You know, if you lose somebody you love, or if you deal with this terrible sickness or recurring illness, you lose your job, like those things strike us as thorns that may cause you to lose your faith. And Jesus says the opposite. He says it's actually the comforts of life. Okay, it's the good things of life. That those comforts are often the way that the world steals our identity. Or in other words, chokes the life out of us and keeps us from becoming what God wants us to be. Now, Jesus knew this firsthand. You know, remember when the devil comes to tempt Jesus. Jesus has been in the desert for days. He is hungry. He hasn't eaten anything. And the devil doesn't come and attack Jesus The devil comes and says, you're hungry? Oh, here's a bunch of bread. You should eat it. You're lonely? Well, here, stand up here. You can see everybody in the world. If you just do this, everybody will love you. All you have to do is not resist. And Daniel's right there in that same kind of moment. right? It would be so easy for him to just go along with Nebuchadnezzar, to just give himself to what Nebuchadnezzar wants from him, to allow those thorns that are growing up that are frankly comfortable thorns to just choke his identity. But he doesn't. He resists. Even though maybe resistance is futile, he resists. And it's pretty small. It's pretty simple. He just says, hey, that food, I'm not going to eat it. It's not for me. And then the strangest thing of all happens as you're reading along in verse 8. When he does this small, simple act of resistance, suddenly this story that until this point was being dictated and determined by the most powerful emperor maybe the world has ever seen, suddenly that same story is no longer being controlled by that emperor and his empire. It's being controlled by this nobody. He's one of God's nobodies, but suddenly this simple, small choice changes the course of human history. I was on a bus trip with some fellow preachers from Churches of Christ a few years ago, and we went down and we toured civil rights locations in Alabama, and we got to meet Fred Gray. Now, Fred Gray is a legend among Churches of Christ. He was the lawyer for Martin Luther King Jr. and Rosa Parks, and we sat down with him, still practicing law. And uh, we sat down with him and he began to tell us about Miss Rosa Parks. And I had this image in my mind of her as, um, uh, you know, just kind of a sweet lady. And he described her as, yes, very sweet. But he says she wasn't meek like everybody thought. And when she decided not to give up her seat on the bus that day in Montgomery, that it was, well, it was on purpose. He said this in his book about it. He said, she was not meek, as many still believe, and she was not merely tired from a day's work, and her arrest was not exactly an accident. I love those lines. 
You know, he's saying her small act of resistance, it changed the course of history and it wasn't accidental. You know, for her, it was a line in the sand. She couldn't give up that seat on the bus and still be who she was. It was a line in the sand she was unwilling to cross. It was resistance, even though she probably felt like resistance was futile. And there was much in this story of Daniel that Daniel couldn't change. You know, like he didn't have the power to defeat Babylon. He couldn't keep Babylon from relocating he and all his friends. He couldn't even keep them from calling him a Babylonian name. But when it came to something he could control, he said, no, I'm not going to do that. And his small bit of resistance, well, it changed history in many ways. The story changes with that one little act of resistance. Now, you may be thinking to this, looking at this story and thinking to yourself, could I do that? You know, if I was in Daniel's shoes and I was living in a strange land and I was out of my element, could I stand up for who I was in God? Could I resist when the world's trying to take my identity, trying to make me somebody I'm not? Could I do that? Well, the answer is yes. And the answer is you are living in a world that is hostile in many ways. You are living in a world that is not your home, as we read in the New Testament. And Yes, you can resist when this world tries to take your identity and make it into something for itself. And the reason you can resist is not because you're brave or courageous or strong like Daniel, although you probably are. The reason that we can resist as the people of God is that we know that when we do resist, God gives us what we need. Okay, that's, that's a big piece of the gospel. And it's here in this story. Look, we see in the story of Daniel that Daniel's resistance only works because, look at verse 9, God had established faithful loyalty between Daniel and the chief official. That word translated established here is gives. God gave faithful loyalty between Daniel and this official, and that's what made his resistance actually work. And then we read on. At the end of 10 days, this is verse 15, they, Daniel and his friends, looked better and healthier than all the other young men. Actually, the same word is there. God gave them health. Okay, And then we jump down to verse 17, and God gave knowledge and mastery of all literature and wisdom to these four men. So instead of leaving Daniel out high and dry when he decides to take this stand for God to resist the ways of this world, God shows up and gives him exactly what he needs. You know, there's so many shorthand versions of the gospel out there, and they're all important and good, but I think a great shorthand gospel is God gives. God gives. You know, the world tells us that resistance is futile, right? The world tells us resistance is futile. In fact, we think that if we resist what this world offers, well, then we're not going to get to enjoy what this world offers. We won't get the promotions we need. We won't get the riches and the comforts and the pleasures that we need in this life. And the response of the gospel is you can resist because you don't need any of that stuff to be who God wants you to be. In fact, we read this in Second Peter, by His divine power, the Lord has given us everything we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of the one who called us by His own honor and glory. The Lord has given us everything we need. You know, it's because He gives that I can resist. 
you know, my, my resistance, you know, I think a lot of times when we're in this world and the world's putting pressure on us to do this or to do that thing. And right now in 2020, there is so much pressure to be who somebody else wants you to be, to do what somebody else wants you to do, right? And the world's putting all of this pressure on us. And I think one of the callings of Christians is in the simple and small ways that we can, we resist what this world's trying to make us into. Like that's part of what it means to be a child of God. And we don't resist because we're foolhardy or arrogant or think we know it all. We resist because we believe God gives us what we need and we can afford to resist. God's going to give us what we need. I mean, what a liberating truth. I don't have to be who this world wants me to be because God's going to give me what I need. Like, wow. One of my neighbors has been watching our online service since we started a few months ago, and she's, she's been a believer all her life, but she's experiencing this kind of new um, revival in her spirit and soul as she's been watching with us online. And it's really cool because after worship service each Sunday morning, we go to the fence and we talk to her across the chain link fence, and she's just describing this spiritual awakening she's having. It's been a really beautiful thing to see and talk with her about. Well, a few weeks ago, she was at the beach with some friends. These are all young adults uh, just down at the beach to have a good time and celebrate together. But it's Sunday morning. And on Sunday morning, she's going to do one thing. She's going to watch Highland Church online. And so it's Sunday morning. They're at the beach house and all her friends are starting to go out to the beach. And she sits down on her phone and she just starts watching, watching worship. And she said that all her friends were like, what are you, what are you doing? Like, let's go, out, let's go out to the water. Come on, let's, let's go out here. And she wasn't ugly. She wasn't rude. She just told them, I'm, you know, going to church. And they were like, I don't know about this. And one by one, they started looking over her shoulder and watching worship with this. And you know what they did? They started sitting down. And that whole group of young adults at the beach on a Sunday morning watched church. They went to church with you and me. It was a small thing. It was a simple thing. And yet it changed the story. Just a little bit of resistance. You know, I don't know what God is calling you to resist. I know that so many of you are feeling just all kinds of pressures from those around you, from the world that we're living in in 2020, which is a difficult time. And I know you're feeling all kinds of pressures to compromise who you are in Christ. Well, let me tell you, you can resist because God is going to give you exactly what you need. And in Jesus Christ, that's what God has done.